Do graphs always have to have a zero baseline? Are pie charts evil? Is there a single right answer? Listen to this episode where I discuss a number of myths and a few rules in data visualization. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for tuning in to the Storytelling with Data podcast. People like rules. It's easier to have a very black and white demarcation of how things are done right and how they are done wrong. But life, as we know, is often more complicated than that. So is data visualization. That said, having a core set of rules when we set out to learn something can be really helpful. If we think of learning different sorts of arts, for example, let's take music. When I learned to play the piano, my mom was a piano teacher, and as soon as I could read music, I wanted to jump in and learn Fiorelisa. But she emphasized the importance of stepping back and first concentrating on the basics, learning the scales, finger positioning, rhythm, counting, or learning to dance. You don't typically start with modern dance. You start with something classic like ballet. Or when learning to paint, you'll often start by learning to draw. One way to think about this is that we're learning the foundation, which is an important place to start. And the rules that we extrapolate from this process can ease our learning. As we build understanding, however, we learn when these rules can be flexed. And in some cases, when they really aren't rules at all, but rather guidelines. Or something that is true for one particular scenario that may not be broadly so. And actually, that brings me specifically to our topic today. One result of people trying to generate rules is that we may inadvertently overgeneralize. Or sometimes I think it's like a game of telephone, where someone says something that might be spot on at the core, but then it gets repeated and heard by someone else who repeats it. And each of these times, the words change a little, and the statement becomes something other than it started off as. This is where myths come about. Myths definitely exist in data visualization. I hear them frequently. And actually, I think this may be a space where there are more myths than there are hard and fast rules. So today, I'm going to talk about a number of common myths, eight to be exact, and a few rules when it comes to visualizing data. Myth number one, line graphs are for continuous data only. Now, I've actually been guilty of using these words in the past, and this is a case of oversimplification. Uh, where line graphs work maybe most easily or most most obviously for continuous data. Um, Often when we're looking at data in a line, we're looking at some sort of time. Uh, Does that mean that always needs to be the case? No, right? We're looking at time a lot with line graphs because time is typically the most frequent continuous data we work with, and line graphs are most frequently used for continuous data. Uh, But if I were going to try to create a rule out of this, the rule would be in a line graph, the lines that connect the points have to make sense. And that can happen in cases where it's not continuous data that we're dealing with at all. 
For example, in the Storytelling with Data challenge uh, that we did earlier this month in June, we were focusing on slope graphs, uh, which for me is just a fancy word for a line graph that only has two points in it. And now slope graphs are one case where there is a good use case for non-continuous data uh, because slope graphs can also work well in some instances for group comparisons where let's say I've got some survey data. Let's say we're looking at our organization's annual employee survey. And I want to understand how the sales organization results varied or compared with the overall organization. So in that case, I can have my overall organization on the left-hand side, the sales organization on the right-hand side. And then you can imagine the dots and the lines that connect them are for various categories or various survey items. And in that case, the lines that connect the points highlight the difference between the sales organization and the overall organization. So if the line slopes downwards, sales performed lower than underscored the overall organization. And when the lines slope upwards, the sales organization outperformed or scored higher than the overall organization. So this is a case where we're using lines, not for continuous data, but the lines make sense. Uh, Dan Sfinka wrote a guest post on the Storytelling with Data blog a couple months back looking at some different use cases for lines when visualizing data. And actually a number of these uh, work in cases where it's not continuous data that you're working with. So let's stop saying that line graphs are for continuous data only and reframe how we uh, extrapolate rules here. So really, when we're graphing data in a line, we just make sure need to make sure that that line makes sense. Let's shift to a different type of uh, chart and a myth that goes along with that, which is myth number two, bars are always better. So I like bar charts. I use them frequently. Uh, I like them because they're easy to read. They're common. Our eyes are good at comparing lengths when we have something aligned to a common baseline. Uh, I sometimes joke if I were sent to a desert island and could only take one graph with me, uh, it would be the bar chart. Uh, does that mean a bar chart always works and a bar chart is always best or always better? Absolutely not. Any data can be graphed countless different ways. And when you graph data different ways, it actually enables you to more or less easily see different things. Uh, so one important part of visualizing data is to allow yourself time and flexibility to look at things one way and, you know, graph it as a bar, graph it as a line, graph it as some of these other types of graphs and see what you can see. And be clear then when it comes to the communication piece of what do I want to enable my audience to see with the graph that I'm showing and then choose a view of the data that's going to lend itself well to that. That's going to make the right ways to look at the data feel intuitive and easy and any wrong ways to look at the data uh, harder to do. So are bars always better? No, absolutely not. Are they a decent place to start when you're first visualizing your data and trying to figure out what you might want to look at or how you might want to look at it? Yeah, I think probably so. Uh, let's talk about another myth related to bars, uh, which is myth number three, graphs must have a zero baseline. 
So this is one of those that I hear actually very commonly, uh, which as stated is not true. Uh, there is a rule that bar charts must have a zero baseline. So when we are looking at data graphed in bars, what our eyes are doing are comparing the endpoints of the bars, which when it's done well means it's really easy to quickly pick out the biggest category or the smallest category. And also because of this alignment to a consistent baseline, we can see the incremental differences between categories, right? The differences between the heights in those bars, so long as it's plotted with a zero baseline. And that's what becomes very important here. Um, and I've talked about this a number of times in the past, and I'll make sure I link to these in the show notes. Uh, did a podcast with John Schwabish at one point where we talked about this topic and have had a couple blog posts as well. But for bars, because of the way our eyes are comparing the endpoints relative to each other and relative to the baseline, we actually need the full bar there in order to make that an accurate visual comparison. If you chop off that bar at anything other than zero, it invalidates that visual comparison. And we've all seen cases where this is done before, right? where it makes a tiny difference between bars look like a really big deal, like a really big thing. Um, then comes the question of, well, what about when we need to be able to show that, right? What about when minor differences or changes are meaningful? Now, it doesn't mean we don't show that. It might mean we don't show that with a bar, right? Or that we change what we're graphing to enable us to show it with a bar, which you can think of doing by uh, having it um, be the baseline of something or starting with a, a baseline to... Um, focus just on the changes. Or if you really need to zoom in, if you need to have your graph start with something that's not zero, then you want to think about looking to lines or points. Right? If we think of points in the case of a scatter plot or a dot plot or lines, really what we're focusing on there is the relative positioning of the points in space. And in the case of a line graph, the relative slopes of the lines that connect those dots. And mathematically, as we zoom, the relative positioning, the relative slopes of the lines remain constant. So you still want to take care and make sure you're not overzooming and making minor changes or differences feel like a really big thing. But depending on context, sometimes minor changes or differences are a really big thing. We think of the efficacy of a drug, for example. Basis points of difference can mean lives saved. Then depending on your audience, you may want to think of turning it into lives saved. But when you need to get at, uh, at the, the finer movement, right, where small changes or differences are meaningful, then you want to think about using lines or points as a way to get there. So graphs must have a zero baseline. This is a myth. Uh, the rule we can uh, take out of that is that bar charts must have a zero baseline. Beyond that, we want to consider context and figure out what range uh, is going to make sense given the data and given the context of what we're showing. Myth number four, let's talk about another type of graph. Uh, I'm going to say myth number four is pie charts are evil. And again, this is another case where I have used those exact words before, um, but n no graph is inherently good or bad, right? Uh, any type of graph can be used well and can be used not so well. And sometimes it's a little fun to be provocative, which is why you'll see uh, old stuff from me uh, called things like pie charts are evil or death to pie charts. 
Pies, for some reason, lend themselves to more misuse than other types of graphs, but they are not inherently evil. We see a lot of bad stuff done, right? The 3D exploding. But my view on pies has actually softened a lot over the years. And in a large part, that's based on new research that came out a couple of years ago uh, done by Robert Kosara and Drew Scow. Uh, where they did a series of studies using pie charts. And they actually uh, proved and disproved a, a couple of interesting things. Uh, one was actually another myth related to pie charts, which is that we read pies based on angle. Um, that was previously commonly held belief. But they showed actually people are estimating based primarily on area when we look at pies. Um, and actually, another myth that uh, was disproven as part of this as well is that it used to be commonly held that we read pies based on angle. And if that were to be the case, then one could argue that donuts are actually worse than pies. Because if you imagine a donut chart, right, that circular chart where you have the center missing, um, we're actually covering up the angle. And so with donuts, then you would read based on arc length. But as I said, it turns out that's not the case. We read in both cases based on area. So one sub-finding, uh, I guess, of the study is that donuts are, in fact, no worse than pies. What I like to say when using a pie, ask yourself why, right? Ask yourself, what is it I'm trying to enable my audience to see? And then figure out if the pie is going to be uh, a way to allow you to do that. Actually, uh, John Schwab, which I mentioned a moment ago, had a post, uh, it's probably a month or two old now, uh, but talking about a case where he goes ahead and uses a pie. It made sense for his audience. It made sense for what he was trying to show. Uh, he refers back to some of these myths uh, as well, I, I think, as part of that. Um, so I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes, as well as the study that I referred to um, from Robert Kosara and Drew Scow. When it comes to using pies, right, and when should we or shouldn't we use a pie, I, I think back to the same thing that we talked about when we were talking about bars, which is what do you want to enable your audience to see? And then ask yourself, why am I using a pie chart or why am I using a bar chart or, you know, include the favorite graph of choice. And if you can answer that question, then you've likely put enough thought into it to be building a graph that when your audience looks at, they can hopefully see what you want them to see. And if ever unsure, there's an easy way to test it, which is create your visual, put it in front of a friend or colleague, have them talk you through their thought process, what they pay attention to, what questions they have, what observations they make can be really useful for figuring out whether the visual you've created is serving its intended purpose, or if it isn't, give you pointers on where to focus your iterations. All right, with that, let's shift on to a broader myth, not one that is related to a particular type of graph. Myth number five, there is such a thing as unbiased data. So this is an interesting one for me. And this, this idea, questions around this have come up frequently for me at workshops lately, where people bring up this idea of wanting to let the data speak for itself or wanting to show the data in an unbiased way. And for me, these words actually don't even make sense to talk about together. There is no such thing as unbiased data. We are biasing our data at every step in the process, from what we choose to measure in the first place to how we aggregate and disaggregate and how we show things. 
And so for me, it's not about removing the bias from data because I don't actually think there's a way to do that, but rather being truthful and honest in the way that we portray our data. And actually, Alberto Cairo and I talked about this uh, a bit in the last podcast, episode seven. And so I think for me, the rule I would extrapolate from this is don't lie with data. And actually, Alberto brought this up in an interesting way where he talks about truth with a lowercase t, because there's no such thing as true or untrue. Rather, it's this spectrum. And it's the responsibility of the analyst or the person who's working with the data to get as close as they can to the truthful side of the spectrum. And really, I think at the core, it's about being honest about what we can say with our data and what are the limitations of that data? What can we not, right? Where are we reaching too far? And a great way to test that, if you're ever unsure, is grab a colleague and have them play devil's advocate. Have them poke holes in what you're saying. Have them raise alternative hypotheses. So often by thinking through some of these things, perhaps looking into the data for confirmation or uh, to disprove some of what you might be thinking can help us get closer to that truthful side where we're being honest in the way that we're portraying our data and really using it as a way to inform and drive better decisions or smarter decisions or better action. Myth number six, more data is always better. So I think this is a hard one because right because it seems like more data is always going to be better and we get this sort of analysis paralysis or death by data sometimes where we chase after some data and then we get asked another question so we chase after some more data and we get asked another question we chase after some more data and I think some of this is driven by this belief that if we get enough data it will answer the question for us but the data rarely, uh, if ever, <laughs> answers the question. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a person always who is turning the data into something that can answer a question. And so it really comes back to thinking about audience and context and figuring out how much data is the right amount for me given that context and given that audience. You know, for example, let's say I, uh, I need to hire a couple people for my team. And there are a couple different audiences I may have to go to uh, in order to get approval to make a couple hires for my team. All right, let's say one of those audiences is my manager. And I have a good relationship with my manager. So I know I can just go into her office and say, hey, I need a couple more people. Uh, you know, here are the things that we're dealing with. And I can get a quick yes and go ahead and do that. Versus if I'm sitting down with my finance partner, it may be a whole slew of different data that I would need in order to have a successful conversation there, right? Of, you know, why is two the right number of people and not one or three? Uh, what are the different um, the things that we're solving, right? Are there SLAs or way to quantify things that might come into this conversation? And so audience and context always become very important when it comes to figuring out the right amount of data. And actually going back to this idea of you know, chasing after more data, more data, more data, I think sometimes that happens because we don't take it to that next step to say, here is what we can do with this data. Or here is how it could direct us to make a decision or take an action where we simply serve up the data. It's very easy for our audience to ask for more data, more data, more data. 
Whereas if we think of turning it into really answering that question of so what, then we're maybe better able to figure out what is the right amount of data for this scenario. And how do I turn that data into information and make it clear to my audience what they can do with that so that we're not always chasing after more data, more data, more data. So we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll tackle the question, do averages always work? No one sets out to create a bad graph, but ineffective data visualizations can actually keep good and important work from getting the attention it deserves. Would you like to inform and drive change with your data? Could you or your team benefit from a targeted training session? From the basic foundational principles of data visualization to the nuanced application of communicating with story, Storytelling with Data has a variety of offerings to meet your needs, including short-form webinars and trainings, half-day sessions, and full-day hands-on workshops. Limited spots are left this summer and fall. Email inquiry at storytellingwithdata.com to learn more. Welcome back. So we, before the break, we were talking about uh, dispelling this myth, I should say, about more data always being better and really thinking about the right amount of data to show, considering our audience and context. And actually, when that means showing less, often that means summarizing or aggregating the data in some way, which leads me to myth number seven. Averages always work to summarize data. I think averages are a place where we often start, uh, but it's good to be aware of some of the potential uh, downfalls or ways that we can inadvertently mislead when we summarize our data in an average. And so you always want to look at your data because you need to understand the distribution, uh, the spread, the variability. Um, actually, Nathan Yao in his book, Data Points, he looks at a specific example when he's talking about variability and it's fatal car crashes. And you know he summarizes it with a single number. And then he looks at what's the breakdown look like annually? What does it look like monthly, weekly, daily, hourly? And shows how you can see different things and how summarizing at each of these levels hides some of the variability that you actually see in your data where there's interesting insight that can come in. And so averages can mislead by hiding a spread in a single number. Um, actually, I'm reading Factfulness right now uh, by Hans Rosling. And he talks specifically about, especially when comparing two averages, we tend to focus on the gap between those numbers, uh, which can be quite dangerous because what you miss when we're summarizing in just those two numbers is overlap or potential overlap in the spread. And he talks through a couple of different interesting examples to illustrate uh, this phenomenon. Uh, and I'll, I'll make sure that I link to all of these resources in the show notes. Also, I mentioned this earlier, but episode seven with Alberto Cairo, uh, he talks about this um, potential to inadvertently mislead by using averages when the underlying distributions are different as well and talks through an example there. 
so do averages always work to summarize data? No, right? You always want to understand what the underlying data looks like. Can averages work? Absolutely, right? And they help us summarize and simplify and wrap our heads around things in a way that can make it easier for us to compare things or understand something. You just want to make sure you know what the underlying data behind those summarized metrics looks like. That brings me to myth number eight. There is a single right answer when visualizing data. This is not the case, right? There is no single right answer. Uh, are some paths better than others? Yeah, probably. But it's highly dependent on the situation. Data, audience, goal. Uh, you know, one might say that graphs should inform first and foremost, but I don't think that's actually the case. Uh, art, interaction, innovation, these are all worthy goals. Actually, Elijah Meeks had a good series of posts recently on Medium called Data Visualization Fast and Slow, where he talks about some of these different things and uh, contrasts this idea to always be fast and efficient with some of the different goals that we may have when visualizing data. So for me, you always want to be thinking about anytime you're showing data, what is your goal? And how can you depict it in a way that's going to help you be successful, right? Is it to inform? Is it to highlight something new? Is it to get your audience to compare something? Is it uh, art or entertainment? And really designing in light of those things and getting feedback to see if the solution that we've created is serving its intended purpose. Or if it isn't, give us pointers on where to concentrate our iterations. So in summary, when visualizing data, if you find yourself using rules or quoting experts, and I put big air quotes around experts because I don't actually believe of there being experts in this space, and perhaps that's another myth. <laughs> Rather, everyone is learning and iterating and improving as they go. In any case, pause and reflect for a moment. Consider, is this really a hard and fast rule? What are the trade-offs of doing things one way versus another going to be? What does my audience need? What do I need? How can I be honest in my portrayal of the data? Then aim to make a smart decision in light of those things. Let's shift next to reader Q&A. Just a reminder, if you have questions for me, please email them to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com for potential inclusion in a future podcast. Alex writes, I want to thank you for your insight and wisdom that you share in your podcast. I am new to data analysis and didn't receive any formal visualization training. I have a BA in philosophy. So you and your book have been especially helpful to me. I have a question that I like to ask. Forgive me if it sounds pretentious. What do you do when you want to increase your professional portfolio, but your employer wants you to make presentations that you're not proud of, aesthetically or otherwise? I very much appreciate your time and your advice. One of these days, I might get brave enough to join in one of your visualization challenges. Uh, so first, I'd say, Alex, uh, definitely participate in the Storytelling with Data Challenge. It's meant to be a safe space to practice, uh, right? No criticism there. It's all about learning and iterating and improving. Uh, so look forward to seeing uh, some work from me there. So when it comes to your question, though, I think for me, I'd want to better understand or would encourage you to pause and reflect on what are the specific constraints that you feel are limiting to you, right? Is it a template that you're being asked to use or your audience or stakeholder uh, or is requiring something to be done a certain way? 
Because understanding these constraints, understanding what's motivating them can help us understand both where we might be able to bend them as well as where they're set in stone and we have to work within them. And I actually think constraints like this can be really helpful in terms of helping us come up with creative solutions. I'd encourage you to check out episode five of the podcast, which focuses on constraints. But understanding your audience, right, or your stakeholders in this the case, what is driving what they're asking for from you? And what are your needs? And how can you figure out where there is overlap in those things? Or if you want a prompt change, right, if you're saying, no, you know, it's not just constraints, it's the, the way they want to do things is wrong. Well, that's not going to be probably the most convincing way to get your stakeholders to agree, right? Uh, the wrong way to approach this is, you know, hey, I listened to this podcast or I read this book and I learned we shouldn't do it like this. We've been doing it wrong. Rather, we should do it like this. It's not so motivating when it comes to uh, prompting change or uh, change management. You want to think about things from your audience's standpoint, or your stakeholders here. You know, can you give them options uh, or is there a way to make them part of the process? So rather than you saying, I want to do it version this way A, you want me to do it this way B, and these things uh, are at odds with each other. How do you make it something that everybody feels a part of so you are working together to arrive at better solutions? And so providing options can be one way to do that. Or uh, really understanding your stakeholders' requirements up front and what's driving those things. Uh, and then giving, again, options to be able to choose between or talk about the merits or the uh, downfalls or limitations of some of the different views can be ways to start driving change. I think anytime you're driving change, right, change makes people uncomfortable. So think about where you can have small successes first and then build from there. And small successes, I find, when it comes to communicating effectively with data in a business setting, color can be one place that can sometimes be a good place to start where, you know, what if we do nothing differently except let's introduce gray as a color into our color palette where we can make a ton of stuff gray and then we use our brand colors or our template colors more sparingly to direct attention and maybe be thoughtful about how we connect some things we highlight in words through their formatting and their color, through some of the things that we show in data, through similar formatting of, and color. Some of these sort of relatively small changes can end up having big impact and can overcome other potential issues. So if you're finding you have to show it with this one graph type and you'd rather use a different one by being sparing and strategic in how we're using our color and our words, sometimes we can overcome some of these other constraints. Munaza writes... I've recently been wondering about some good ways of visualizing data when time intervals are unevenly spaced. As in, we have data points for some years and not others, mostly because they don't exist, uh, such as election results across uneven timeframes. I'm tempted to use line or area because time is involved and I'm interested in change over time. However, line and area charts don't seem quite right because of the discontinuity in the data. And a line chart might make it seem that intermediate years might have a value attached to them when they don't. What's your take on this? 
Uh, so this is a great question and one where I think you definitely want to make it visually clear when you have, you know, whether it's uneven timeframes or you don't have every single data point, right? Again, coming back to this idea of election results, if you have something every four years or every two years, and there are a couple of ways that you can do that. So with lines, you can think about emphasizing the points over the lines themselves. And so this I would use if we had, let's take the example again of election results, where I don't have every single year, I have maybe every four years I have a data point. So in those cases, I could have my x-axis, you know, it could have every four years or it could be every year, and then the actual line would put emphasis on the points. So I may make the data markers for the points where I have data big and bold, and then in between the years where I have data, so for the years that I don't have data, I might not have markers at all. If I, And actually, I wouldn't do markers at all there because that would imply that you've got some data behind it. And maybe you do something to make the line thin or lighter in intensity so that you still get it visually to connect the points together, but that the focus is on the points where you have the data. Now, where you have uneven times, right? So for example, I can think of one where this was in the media where everything was reported on a decade basis going back. So it was like 1950, 1960, 1970, and so forth. But then it got to like 2010, and suddenly we had annual data from there on out. This case, it was shown as a bar graph, and the bars were all, all looked the same. So you had to read very carefully to understand that some of these bars represented a decade's worth of data or a summary from a decade, and other was annualized. And so that we want to not do in that way. And that you can attack a couple of different ways. We wanted to stick with bars. Uh, we might expand our decade data so that it would take up visually more so that you could then have your annual data, say for the past decade, take up about the same amount of width, right? And I'd likely split it into two separate graphs in doing so, where I could have one on the left that has the decade data, one on the right that has the annual data, but where decades worth of points would look roughly the same width-wise across the left-hand graph and the right-hand graph. So your decade points would be wider, your annual points would be narrower. I'm realizing as I talk through this that that might be hard to picture what's in my head. <laughs> uh, you could also do this with lines, but in the same way, you would want to demarcate very clearly where you're showing decade data versus annual data and do the same sort of either compressing or stretching of the graph itself so that you've got some visual cues that the summarized data you're looking at is for different points if that makes sense. And I'll try to dig up an example to point to uh, so that we have something to be able to refer to visually on here and include that in the show notes. But basically, you, you definitely want to make it clear visually and through the way that you're labeling the axis, uh, also through footnotes, you can do things to, to make it clear when you have either uneven time intervals or data where you don't have every single data point in a time series. Becky writes, we are working on initiatives to improve our organization's data viz skills. Could you share what worked well and didn't work well when you were teaching data viz at Google? Or what have you seen work well at clients you've consulted with? We've been kicking around a lot of ideas and want to figure out the best things to focus on first. So first off, I love the, uh, the energy and the focus on this. And I think that's really the first piece. Uh, you know, where as a team or an organization, when you want to improve data visualization is just recognizing that that is a specialized skill set that we don't, we aren't naturally good at. And so anything you can do to foster that and uh, place importance on it uh, is the best first step. 
in terms of specific things to do, uh, what we did at Google and what I've seen work well at other organizations is a two-pronged approach. So one is investing in some training broadly to give everybody a common language to use, to um, build that foundation, right? If we think back to uh, how we started off the podcast today with the foundation and the rules, uh, give everybody that same sort of foundation to start from. And then secondly, identify one or a handful of folks who can be your internal experts and invest in them in terms of giving them time uh, to practice and to stay up with uh, you know, what's going on in the industry and to understand uh, or identify examples of what good looks like and work to emulate that. The nice thing there is then you have people who, if somebody gets stuck, there's someone internally who they can turn to to get feedback or to brainstorm. It can also be a nice bit of career development for the individual and making that part of their job expectation. Uh, something else that we did in my team at Google that I've seen done elsewhere as well to good effect is building a data visualization library. These can be slides or graphs of data visualization done well. In some cases, uh, having a little bit of friendly competition. So you can think of having a monthly or a quarterly contest where people submit examples that they have created, that they're proud of, or that were effective, and have people actually vote on those. And then the winners uh, get added to this library that can be a living, breathing thing that can be good for a couple different things. can be great for inspiration, right? So if someone's feeling stuck, they have something to turn to to be able to look and see well, how other people visualized different data in the past. It can also be great when you have new people join the team where you can hand it to them and say, you know, here's what good looks like. This is, this is what we want to emulate. And so they start off with that in hand. I think another thing that can be really helpful is one of the ways that we really get better and more effective at visualizing data is to get feedback on what we're doing that works well and what we're doing that maybe doesn't work well or might be confusing. And so anything you can do to make feedback a regular part of the process, right? A feedback session that you have as you go, as you're working on content, get feedback from your colleagues or post hoc after you have a meeting where you're talking through data, what worked well, what didn't work well, where did you drive the sort of conversations that you wanted to, where didn't that happen? And really making feedback of all aspects related to it, both the aesthetic visualization piece, but as well as the, you know, are we driving the change? Are we getting the understanding that we want to when we're communicating with data and making that uh, part of the process where it's not criticism, right? But it's rather reflecting on how can we, how can we get good in this space and what are we doing that is already good and where, where might we have blind spots or where are there things that we could be focusing on to further increase our effectiveness? And I'd love to hear from those listening who've done things at their organization that others can learn from uh, when it comes to this idea of building uh, excellence in data visualization, building the skill set around this. If you have ideas or things that your organization is doing, please email those to feedback at storytellingwithdata.com. I should also mention that I welcome feedback on all aspects of the podcast here. So if you have ideas for future topics of interest, or any points of feedback on things to keep doing or do differently, please let me know. And again, that's feedback at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks very much to those who've submitted questions. If you have a question for me, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com for potential future inclusion here. 
Before we wrap, a couple of quick updates. Uh, more than 70 people shared their slope graph creations as part of the June Storytelling with Data Challenge, and the recap post will be up on the site this week. Be sure also to check out the new page at storytellingwithdata.com slash swdchallenge, all one word, to see the various monthly challenges and recaps. And so this includes hundreds of graphs shared and organized by type, by challenge. So it's a great place to scan for inspiration. The next challenge will kick off July 1st. Stay tuned to the site for details there. I'm going to give you some additional latitude this time, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. I'll also soon be announcing details for the fall public workshops and we'll likely have sessions in Milwaukee, San Francisco, Austin, New York, and London. Stay tuned to the site or sign up for the mailing list to be notified when those are scheduled. And with that, be sure to follow at Story with Data on Twitter and Instagram. Check out all the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks very much for listening.